So yes, we're walking through the book of Acts, outsider to insider, hurting to healing, sitting to serving, serving to leading, leading to following. We're looking at the ways that the early church moved, the key moves in the Christian life that keep us moving, that keep us growing in our faith. We've talked about moving from outsider to insider. We've talked about moving from hurting to healing. This morning we're talking about moving from sitting to serving. You know, there's a, there is a culture into which Luke is speaking, and that culture is beginning to change. Conflict is beginning to arise because of differences in culture. Luke is the one. Dr. Luke, did you know that? Luke is the one who wrote uh, one of the Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Luke, of course, and then Acts. Luke and Acts were originally one book, and, uh, and Luke is the one who put them together after close study of the documents and interviewing people who were eyewitnesses. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he's saying there are a lot of people who've, who've written down what they've seen and heard and experienced, just as those from whom from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so he's speaking to Theophilus, which is, in the Greek, if you just break it down, Theophilus, lover of God. Now, some people believe that he's speaking as a generic, in a generic way to all the church or anybody who would be listening. But there's evidence that he's speaking to somebody in particular, and I think it's interesting to note that one of the people that, that emerges as, 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 as a, a candidate for this anonymous Theophilus is the brother-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And so, as you've seen in the first week and the second week, this, this growing movement, this gospel movement, after Jesus is crucified and people realize who he was, as the people who had, were central to the power of the church that crucified Jesus began to be pricked in their hearts, as the scriptures say, they begin to turn. And here is Luke coming in and encouraging them rather than, than accusing them, saying, Oh, excellent Theophilus, oh, you lover of God, don't you forget, that's who you are. And so he's speaking into the church. He's giving an orderly account. And what he's, what he's seeing, what he's beginning to see, and what you'll see as, as we read through Acts chapter 6, just the first eight verses, is that as the movement begins to branch out, division begins to rear up. Division. Cultural division. You know, there were two different, two different cultures within Jerusalem. There was the Jewish culture, and then there was, of course, the Greek and Roman culture. The Greeks had been the dominant culture, and they, 
The Greek language was the lingua franca, the, uh, the English of the day, the, the common trade language. It's the, it's the language that everybody spoke. And some Jews were uh, syncretistic, or they were, they were engaged with the common culture around them. They were more progressive. So you had the conservatives who were, who were in Jerusalem, who, who abided by the old traditions, and then you had the progressives. And, and so even before Christianity began to move outside of the walls of Jerusalem, there was conflict in the movement. There was a problem. And the problem was very specific. You see, we read already how everybody in this movement had held all things in common. And they were, they were caring for each other. They were selling land just to meet somebody's need. But as the movement began to move into the, the, the Greek-speaking Jewish culture, their widows were being neglected. Whereas the traditional Jewish widows were being taken care of, they were, being, they were, they were, they were called in zone one. They were, they were zone one. They were ushered onto the plane at, at, at the, uh, into the first class seats and, and the, uh, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were, 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 were still in the terminal and they began to complain about it. This is what Acts 6 is all about. How are we going to deal with this growing movement of people, thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ? How are we going to bridge the division in our culture? Well, hear God's word. From Acts chapter 6, 1 through 8. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews, the traditional Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, that is, of food. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, now, this is a big deal. They, they got everybody together. It is not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Achanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. May God bless us today through this his holy word. Let's pray together. Father, bless us now to receive from you as we reflect upon your holy word that it would not just be on our lips but in our lives as well. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
This is from Dave Barry, humorist, columnist, Dave Barry. He said, let's say a guy named Roger is attracted to a woman named Elaine. He asks her out to a movie, and she accepts, and they have a pretty good time. They continue to see each other regularly, and after a while, neither one of them is seeing anybody else. One evening while they're driving home, a thought occurs to Elaine, and without really thinking, she says aloud, do you realize that tonight we've been seeing each other exactly six months? And there's a silence in the car. There's a silence. To Elaine, it seems like a very loud silence. She thinks to herself, oh boy, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation that he doesn't want or isn't sure of. And Roger is thinking, gosh, six months. And Elaine is thinking, but hey, I'm not so sure I want this kind of relationship either. Sometimes I wish I had a little more space so I'd have time to think about whether I really want to keep going the way we are, moving steadily forward. I mean, where are we going? And we just, are we just going to keep seeing each other, this level of intimacy? And what are we heading toward? Marriage? Toward children? Towards a lifetime together? And Roger's thinking, so that means, uh, let's see. February when we started going out, which was right after I had the car at the dealers, which means, let me check the odometer. Whoa, I'm way overdue for an oil change here. <laughs> Even between genders, we can see great differences of the way we look at life, approach life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that within the church, there's going to be some divided culture as well. Certainly within the worldwide movement of the gospel, you're going to see some differences of opinion. And so, how do we deal with that? How do we bridge the divide? How do we continue to be one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism? How do we bring our church together in a way that demonstrates that the gospel movement unites How do we champion the faith as an ideal that's good for us, that's good for cultures, all cultures? How do we bridge the divide? You know, someone said actions speak louder than words, and I, I think we can sort of feel what that means, but let's say it, let's tweak it this morning. Let's look at chapter 6 of Acts to see how, act, how, how actions, especially when we're serving together, rolling up our sleeves getting into the action, how actions speak clearer than words. Clearer than words. Person to person, culture to culture. Actions speak clearer, clearer than words. When we're serving together, person to person. See, when, when we're serving, so first person to person, how, how actions speak clearer than words, person to person. When we're serving together, when we roll up our sleeves, when we get proximate, when we're, when we're engaging people who have needs, and we're doing that together, people can see what we're doing, and when they see that we're, we're listening and we're helping, we're engaging, we're, we're active and we're present... Those actions speak. 
And, and people look at that and they don't see and wonder, I wonder what the real agenda is. The way sometimes words do. I'll give you a picture of this. So I, I was uh, listening to, um, to, to a, a fellow who wrote a book called When Helping Hurts uh, Speak, Brian Fickert. And Brian was telling the story about a mission trip to Brazil. And this mission team developed T-shirts. They all had the same colored T-shirt, and it all had the same motto on the back of it. And so here they are, demonstrating the love of Christ, moving out into a, a mission area in Brazil, and in Portuguese, on the back of their shirt, in the middle of this slum area of Brazil, they are saying to the people around them in words, here for the least of these. Now, where's the groan? Where's the collective groan? Can you imagine? Picture yourself, put yourself there in Brazil and you're a Brazilian and here comes this team from America and you're out and you're, maybe you're fetching water and you see these folks coming and they're all smiles and they're happy and they've got, you know, they've got basketballs and soccer balls and all that and, then, and that looks great. And then you see the back of their shirt and it says here to serve the least of these. Ouch. Oops. I mean, we mean well sometimes when we speak. We don't always make the connection that we're actually saying things to real people who are just like us. <laughs> I wouldn't like that message. But you know what I do like? When, when um, I was in first, at First Pres Orlando, we had a death in the family, and I went away, and I came back, and my next-door neighbor had broken into my house and had um, stocked the refrigerator and had set up, uh, I'll never forget this, I looked in the fireplace, and the fire was just ready to light. I mean, all I had to do was strike a match, and there was a fire in the fireplace. It was just a, they just thought, what should I do? They're going and dealing with this thing. When they come back, I want to make sure. Isn't it amazing when people just show up to serve? Isn't the message clear? We love you. We love you. It's a clear message. That's what's happening in verse 1. You see, they're just saying that they want to be present across a cultural divide. They want to make sure that what speaks louder, that what speaks clearer than division is the love of Christ. They're saying to the Hellenistic Jews who are following Christ, they're saying to that culture, your widows matter to us. Your widows matter. The people, the, the women who have been faithfully serving, their families who have lost their husbands and lost their livelihood at that time, that's, that's how it, it worked. There was a strict division. They matter. They matter. We're not forgetting about them. And, and, and then in verse 3, there's this curious little thing that goes on. It says, we're not going to neglect the word in order to serve tables. It, it, it seems as though, at first glance, it seems like what they're saying is that, that serving these widows is not as important as the word. 
when in fact it's saying absolutely the opposite. They're concerned that the urgency of the moment is going to draw them away from the ministry of the word. So what did they do? They found the very best among them. People of high repute and wisdom. People of high repute, not, not just within their camp, but people who everyone would look at and say, that's, that's a leader, that's somebody who's trusted, that's, 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 that's one of their best going to engage this issue. It's a little like what, what I heard um, Michael Carney. Michael, I don't know if he's here this morning, but uh, Michael and Jewel and, and their two children have um, been visiting with us the uh, last few months. They've moved to Thomasville. He's, he's a movie director, and he's, he's, he's directing a movie called The Same Kind of Different as Me. And this is a story about a guy named Ron Hall who befriends, uh, Ron Hall, a, a white guy, is befriended by or befriends a, a black man uh, named Denver Moore. And they become best friends. I, initially, Denver and his wife are friends, and it's his wife and her cancer that, that, that draw them together. And, uh, and they're scared of each other at first. They, 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 they see the differences, and they're... They're, they're concerned about the, 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 the differences in their culture. But this is a story of two men coming together around a common cause, first around the cause of his wife who has cancer, and, and then the cause of people who are down and out. And Denver teaches Ron how to love the last, the least, the lost. Denver tells Ron, when you show up and you keep your mouth closed and you listen and you, you serve, you know what you're saying to me? You're saying, I see you. I see you. You're not invisible. Just because, you know, things haven't gone well for you for whatever reason, you still matter. I see you. That simple message of human connection is what Denver taught Ron Hall. Ron will, says in the book, I mean, he was all about himself. He was all about his career and high-flying, and his wife had gotten into this outreach ministry, and he reluctantly came, and he, you know, he was serving, and, and, uh, and here comes this man into his life that changed everything. And the message, the, the, the square one message of serving is simply to say, I see you. You matter. See, actions speak clearly where words fail, person to person. No agenda except the one clear message. You matter. I see you. So, Actions, serving, speaking more clearly than words, person to person, and now culture to culture. Let's take a look at how actions speak, even across cultural division. It's all on all of our minds right now, isn't it? It's, it's what's being uh, fomented in every media outlet. It's what's in our conversations and in our emails and it just seems like, like any time there's some cultural division, um, one way or another, if there's a little spark there, 
a bunch of people show up with kindling and throw it on <laughs> to see the thing flame up. And here we are again and again until the next flare up. How, does, how do actions, serving actions, bridge culture to culture? Well, first we have to understand that we do have a culture. Now, maybe you didn't realize that because you're swimming in that culture, right? And, 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 and fish, like, like, uh, like someone said, fish don't complain of being wet. They don't notice, right? That, that your culture is what you're swimming in. You don't notice, right? But you have a culture. You have a way of looking at things. Some of it is good. Some of it is not so good. Some of our life patterns and lifestyles are, are not lined up with the gospel. And we think that it is because maybe we've elevated something in our culture that shouldn't be elevated. But we have a culture, and we have blind spots as a result. And so when we talk to people, I, I had lunch last week with Denny Blake, a black pastor across town, and he and I had a great, great lunch together. And I, I, looking back, and the way that I normally say things, I started to realize I probably stuck my foot in my mouth just because I have blind spots. I said things in a way that were probably offensive. We have a culture. But, but here's how often um, our uh, academic community and how uh, the trends are saying to deal with cultural differences. The way we, we normally say uh, how we deal with cultural divide, the cultural divide, is open-mindedness. Now, 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 follow this here. Uh, the idea here is that um, we're concerned about division, and so how we're going to deal with it is we're just going to be open-minded about everything, and we're going to be willing to hold our, all of our truth and all of our culture just very loosely, and, and we're not going to really, uh, tr- we're going to walk around on eggshells around each other, and we're going to make sure that we're open to everything and everybody. Now, here's the problem with this. I don't know if you remember back in the 1996 Olympics, but there was a mascot. And the mascot looked like it was put together by a bunch of people whose only agenda was not to offend anyone. We're going we're gonna to make sure that whatever this mascot is, says to anybody, that there, there's nobody in the world that feels excluded, and there's no possible way that it could offend anyone. And they actually named it the, the what's it. That's right, the what's it. Now, when I think of this sort of attitude of open-mindedness, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be open to new ideas. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be constantly learning, that we shouldn't understand. See, but the attitude of open-mindedness that's, that's so open that your brains fall out, as they say. You know, someone said that the idea of an open mind like an open mouth is to close again on something nourishing and substantial. And so we shouldn't apologize for our culture, but we should recognize we do have blind spots. How we deal with it is not to do away and minimize differences, not to ignore those differences or try to to take them away and develop some kind of what's-it culture, but instead to bridge culture to culture, rolling up our sleeves and serving. That's what's happening as you look in verse 2. And the 12 summoned The full number of the disciples, this was a big deal. Everybody needed to get all the leadership. It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word and serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men. That's a complete number. They they did this on purpose. They're sending a message that this really is important. 
men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom to be discerning. Here's what's happening here. It's a beautiful thing. What's happening is they are wanting their words and their deeds to match up. They're wanting the gospel to speak at every layer of their lives. They're wanting to be sure that that their lips and their lives speak the same thing, that they're not saying one thing with their lips and another thing with their lives. They're trying to make sure that every part of their lifestyle together says the same thing, says something about the faith, hope, and love of the gospel. Now, you've heard it said, uh, quoted, St. Francis quoted before, and there's a criticism that comes with this. Always preach Christ. If necessary, use words. You've heard that before, probably. Always preach Christ. So in everything you do, in all of your lifestyle, in all your actions, always preach Christ. If necessary, or when necessary, use words. Here's the criticism of that, and then we're going to come back to it. Here's the criticism. The criticism is that that's used as a way out of not having to say anything that might be embarrassing, right? We're just going to do good deeds, and we're going to let it speak for itself, and we're not going to, uh, we're not going to say anything that might make anybody feel uncomfortable, right, about our faith, about what we believe, about why we're doing what we're doing. That's not what St. Francis means. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying, let your life have integrity. If you really believe that God made every human being in the image and nature of God, then why is it that Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour or day of the week? Why is it that we would allow such division and not take initiative to build bridges and to build them in such a way that our actions cannot be mistaken for power? You see, that's the problem. That's the problem. That goes back to this whole open-mindedness thing. See, quietly, culture is being whittled away. Culture that's been created out of goodness, out of courage, And it's not being replaced by anything but a what's it. And so what are we going to do? What are we going to do to bridge the divide, to say to the world that every person matters? What are we going to do? Are we going to dumb down our culture? Are we going to try to be as least offensive as we possibly can be? Or are we going to do what the early church did, and that is to demonstrate in action across cultural lines, going right at the problem, rolling up our sleeves, and serving in a way that is helpful and not harmful. So two questions that help us do that. Two questions, and then we're done. Two questions. First of all, you have to ask yourself, and I've I've told you this before. It's kind of a shocker, but you have to ask yourself this. When you're going to serve, you have to ask, what's in it for me? I'm serious. What's in it for me? If you don't know why you're serving, then you're probably being driven by something ugly, something like guilt. You know what? I just feel guilty. I'm just going to go do good deeds. 
You know, this was a problem in the early 1900s when there was a difference between people who were sort of embracing modern ideals of the Enlightenment and people who just wanted to, to just not deal with the moving and changing times. And so these people over here who were modernizing and becoming more progressive, they were just wanting the church to do one thing. They just wanted it to be social. They wanted to do social action, good deeds. And over here, they were forgetting about the, the, the social justice causes, and they were just only about the word. And you can see in Acts chapter 6, it's the same issue. They're saying, do good things. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. But don't forget the ministry of the word. It's got to be both, you see? That's the picture that we need to be walking around with as First Presbyterian Church. It's both. It's not either or. So that our lives and our lips are saying the same thing. So that we're, when you think of St. Francis saying, uh, you know, always preach Christ if necessary, use words. What he's saying is, earn the right to be heard. Earn the right to be heard through your actions, through your deeds, so that when you speak, people have already seen why you're doing what you're doing, and you're confirming it. It's the love of God. It's not guilt. It's not trying to equalize things. It's not trying to overcompensate. It's not trying to make up for things that embarrassed that that. Other fringe people have done. I'm not being anxiously running into this because a bunch of people have rallied in Charlottesville and done a bunch of crazy things. No, it's driven by the love of God. You have to ask yourself, what's in it for me? Why am I doing this? I'm doing this that my joy may be complete by pouring out my life into the lives of other people. That's the first question. Second question is this. The question you have to ask is, how may I help. How may I help? Don't presume what that is. Don't look from the outside to another culture and just say, you know, I think they need this and I'm just going to go do that. But show up, understanding what drives you to show up, roll up your sleeves, get proximate, get in there and ask the question, how may I help? And when they tell you, listen, that's what we need to be about. What's going to bridge this divine? Actions speak louder than words. Let me close with this story. A rabbi once asked his students, how do I know that nighttime is coming to an end and day has begun? How do I know that the night is passing away and day has begun? So the first and brightest of students offered an answer. Rabbi, when I look out at the fields and I can distinguish between my field and the field of my neighbor, that's when night has ended and the day has begun. And second student offered, Rabbi, when I look at the fields and I see a house and I can tell it's my house and not the house of my neighbor, that's, that's when I know. Each answer brought a sadder and more severe frown to the, to the rabbi's face until he finally shouted, No, none of you understands. You only divide. You divide your house from the house of your neighbor, your field from your neighbor's field. Is that all we can do, divide, separate, split the world into pieces? Isn't the world broken enough? Then tell us, Rabbi, how do we know that night has ended and the day has begun? And the rabbi stared back into the faces of his students, and with a voice suddenly gentle but imploring, he responded, when you look into the face of the person who is approaching you, and you can see 
he's your brother or your sister. Then night has ended and day has begun. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and your word expressed in the deeds of the early church. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Help us, Lord, to follow the good example of the past. Those of us who will not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Lord, help us to learn from the men and women who bridged a divide by rolling up their sleeves and moved from sitting to serving. In Jesus' name, amen.